Bibles again to Revelation chapter 8, as we are continuing our verse-by-verse look at this uh, wonderful book of the Bible that sometimes can be kind of scary, like like our uh, scripture reading this morning. Uh, but when we keep it all in proper perspective and kind of understand uh, what God is doing here in in this book and in uh, Revelation and in this section of Revelation that we're looking at, uh, we kind of understand. If we understand what He's doing, then it can then it can be. Uh, some somewhat of a wake up call for us, as if you notice there in the beginning of the scripture reading here in chapter eight, uh, there was a silence in heaven for about a half of about a half an hour. It says, and there is a lot of talk in Christendom these days uh, about the silence and how this is something that we ought to be. St- uh, seeking. This is where we're going to meet God in quote unquote, the silence. And he's just going to give us some great, we're going to find some great insight, have some great blessing from, from God in the silence. And well, the fact of the matter is that the Bible, uh, kind of portrays something a little different than that in the silence. And this is just one of, one of the examples, uh, uh, there's a lot of there are a lot of issues with trying to get into quote unquote the silence through some kind of meditation and these kinds of things that that uh, modern Christianity will teach about uh, that aren't part of <laughs> what we want to talk about today. Uh, the number one issue with that is though that God has communicated to us in His Word. That's how He's chosen to communicate with mankind. This is where we go to know more about who he is, what his, how he has uh, solved the problem of sin that we sang a lot about this morning and him in Jesus Christ dying for our sins. Uh, and this is where he reveals what he's going to do in the future. And for people who are Christians, people who have trusted in Christ, we come to a place like Revelation chapter 8 that speaks of, of unprecedented judgment that is coming to this earth. It ought to, to, it ought to motivate us to live for the Lord today and to do uh, what He wants us to do with our, with our lives. So when we come to this period of silence, like a lot of the periods of silence in the Bible that we come to, we see judgment being spoken of. So that's why I entitled the message today, Beware in the Silence. You might get something you weren't, weren't necessarily expecting when you are in the silence with God. But this, this section of Revelation, uh, it's important to, to understand the whole context as we've tried to emphasize of the book of Revelation. It's not just a, a standalone book of the Bible uh, that we can just go to and start getting, uh, well, we can get great truths from it, obviously, but you have to understand it in where it fits into the Bible. I've mentioned this poor kid uh, a time or two before in the past, but I still remember when I was 
I think it was eighth grade, that there was a kid in one of my classes reading from the book of Revelation and in school, which says something about the school's 40 years ago or however long ago that was. He could actually have a Bible there. It, unfortunately, though, he was reading from the book of Revelation and he was cutting himself at the same time. He was not, not a believer. He was more into uh, like seeing the devil and these kinds of things in the Bible. Very scary. Obviously not understanding Revelation in its proper context of how we saw in the beginning that there's a great blessing for reading and understanding this book because you really have to understand the whole Bible to get to this point and understand what John, what the Lord is saying through the Apostle John in this book. And that's why he lays it out kind of the way that he does with this introduction in chapter 1, this vision of the risen Christ, the one who's presenting the book. He gives messages to the churches in chapters 2 and 3, uh, writing about the things which are. And then this section that we're in now in our study, both the things which will take place after these things, future events that will take place on the earth, here in the book of Revelation, it's not a mystery. It's not a reveal, or it's not a uh, a concealing of truth. It's a revelation of truth. That's what the book means. God is in this book revealing things that are going to take place in the future, things that were promised about or talked about in the Old Testament. Here, given much greater detail. Uh, so that we can understand how God is going to finally and fully take care of the problem of sin in this world. Uh, God created this world. Here's our biblical chronology uh, slide. God created this world way back here in the beginning of our timeline. And he created it to be a perfect place for humanity to live in, a place where we could have uh, perfect fellowship with one another. We, uh, we would have perfect relationships that, that weren't uh, consumed with, with fighting and, and all of the things that go on in this world. Perfect fellowship between us and God. Life the way that, that it is supposed to be. That is the way that he originally created it to be. But we know that uh, we've messed it up. <laughs> Humanity in our, in our arrogance and in our pride uh, decided that, that we know more than God does, or we want to know something different than what God has revealed for us. And we call that problem sin. Uh, and we all have that problem. And that, that sin has essentially caused every every problem that we see in the world from our uh, broken relationships to our disease to war that we see going on in the world. That's all caused by sin. And death is caused by sin. God promised that from the very beginning. If we rebel against him, eventually we're going to die physically. But also in the beginning, he made a great promise a very great promise that is that is really the theme throughout the entire 
uh, the entirety of Scripture. What, what is the Bible about? The Bible is about Genesis 3.15. Now, that, that might come as a surprise, but it, but it is very true. When, when God is kind of telling uh, Adam and Eve and Satan about the consequences of their, of their sin, he says this in Genesis 3.15 to Satan. I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He, the seed of the woman, shall bruise you on the head. He shall, uh, he shall utterly crush you, is what that, that means. And you shall bruise him on the heel. Uh, Satan, uh, in, in, in essence, you are going to have kind of your time in this world you are even going to be able to injure the seed of the woman, but that seed of the woman is going to crush you. He is going to ultimately uh, eradicate you and in, in your uh, the problems that you have brought into this world. He is going to ultimately solve that problem. And so the rest of the Bible tells us how that takes place. And it begins as... We probably know with the nation of Israel, this seed of the woman has to come into this world, not from a, not from a God-rejecting nation, but from a holy nation that God is going to create. That nation is Israel. And this seed of the woman that, that we know now is Jesus. How is he going to come into the world? Well, we have this whole, all of this history of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. And then Jesus comes into the world uh, in his birth, the incarnation. God himself takes on human flesh, becomes the seed of the woman, and lives on this earth. And we know that he eventually uh, uh, dies for the sins of the world. He came into the world so that we could enjoy life the way that it was supposed to be. That's why he came to the nation of Israel. God's plan is that if, if his nation, his people, will believe in this Messiah, believe in this seed of the woman, then life will be the way it's supposed to be on this earth. That's God's plan for the world. The nation rejected him. And he died on the cross, paying the penalty for the sins of the world, but then he returned to heaven. The kingdom didn't come to the earth. It wasn't established when he came the first time. So now we're living in this church age. One day, that church age is going to end. Jesus Christ, like I mentioned in the last uh, stanza of the last uh, song that we sang this morning, one day he's going to come again for us. We're going to see him face to face. He's going to take us back to heaven like it talks about in John uh, 14. That's going to end this church age. And then these judgments that we read about in the book of Revelation, beginning in chapter 6, are going to start to take place. All in an effort to get the nation of Israel to believe in Jesus as their Messiah, this is, a, this is a necessity. Jesus himself said this. This must 
happen. The nation of Israel has to believe in him as their Messiah. Jesus said uh, in the the last week of his life, after he had come into uh, the city of Jerusalem on what is today Palm Sunday, a little bit later in the week, he says this in Matthew 23, 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Very key phrase there. Verse 38, behold, your house is being left to you desolate, for I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You cannot have the kingdom until you are willing to believe in me, until you use your free will, nation of Israel, and believe in me, trust in me, you cannot have this promised kingdom that practically the entire Old Testament is about, a kingdom on earth. You cannot have that until you are willing to believe in me. And so God, in his mercy, reveals that it is going to take seven years of the most intense judgment that this world has ever seen for the nation of Israel to believe in Jesus as their Messiah. And then he will come again to the earth and establish his uh, kingdom upon the earth. But it's going to take this period of judgment that we're studying in Revelation for that to take place. The people must believe in him for that to happen. Very similar to the way that we must believe in him to have our sins forgiven, to have eternal life. It's based on one single condition, believing in Jesus Christ and what he did for us on the cross in dying for our sins. The punishment for sin is death. Jesus took that sin, that punishment upon himself in dying for our sins. We can only have the forgiveness of sins through trusting in what Christ did for us on the cross. And so in uh, the book of Revelation now, we, we have uh, made our way to through chapter 7, where we saw the uh, kind of this break in the action. Chapter 6, if you'll remember, is when the judgments started with the seal judgments uh, that we'll uh, talk about here shortly. But then in chapter 7, there was a break where these angels are introduced, uh, probably angels who are restraining judgment at that time so that this sealing of the 144,000 Jewish witnesses could take place and the, uh, protecting them so that they can go out into the world and, and be, a, be a, a witness for the Lord. And we see the result, we saw the results of their work in uh, verses 9 through 17 with this incredible multitude of people, this believing uh, remnant, if you will, this believing multitude who is in heaven uh, praising the Lord and being thankful for the fact that they were saved 
uh, during this tribulation period through trusting in Christ because of the wit because of the the witness of these Jewish believers who were uh, specially sealed for this uh, mission that they had from God. And that brings us to uh, chapter 8, our passage today, where we will see uh, the pattern, the prayers, and the, the peals of thunder. We begin with the pattern. And what is the pattern of the book of Revelation? There's, there's some discussion about that. There's some discrepancy among theologians about how, how the, the structure of this book, how it's actually uh, being laid out. We'll get into that uh, this morning. Notice again, Revelation 8, 1, it says, when the lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. We saw the, he saw the lamb, John saw the lamb break the seventh seal. Uh, this is, of course, the seventh uh, that you, know, you don't have to be a math major to understand seven comes after six. There's a sequence of seal judgments that have already taken place. Uh, there's one good indication that we are not in the tribulation today is that as we have seen that the tribulation period, this future judgment period actually begins with peace. We saw with the first seal. It was kind of a a false peace, obviously, because the second seal brought war, and then there was famine with the third seal, death on an unprecedented seal uh, scale with the fourth seal. Then the fifth seal was broken. All of these seals, of course, we saw being broken by the Lamb. We saw a, a great multitude of martyrs, people who would not compromise uh, their trust in the Lord, or were, it says literally, dying because of the word of God, just because they were associated with people who believed in the word. The, the unbelieving world is so vitriolic in their hatred towards God and his word that they were just murdering people. And then in the sixth seal, we see sort of a change as Jesus Christ breaks the sixth seal, there became these, like the very foundations of creation were beginning to uh, come, come apart with earthquakes and stars falling from the heavens and uh, the sun being darkened and the moon uh, turning as if it looked to blood. And now with this seventh seal, we're actually going to see that there's another earthquake, but it's actually the beginning of the trumpet judgments, another series of judgments that are going to take place. But notice again that the lamb is the one breaking the seals. This is the wrath of, of God being poured out upon the world. He is the one doing this, unlike uh, what the what's known as pre-wrath rapturism. They're going to try to say that, well, this is really just man's wrath being poured out uh, on on the earth here. But uh, I, I guess there are some theories about men causing earthquakes and some of the things that we do in this world can cause earthquakes. But 
I, there's nothing that we can do to make stars fall from the sky. Uh, we can't turn the moon to blood. We can't turn the sun uh, dark and these kinds of these kinds of things. And it explicitly says that Jesus Christ is the one who's breaking these seals. He is the one who is uh, causing these things to happen. This is his wrath, but it's for a purpose. Like I mentioned, this isn't just God uh, being mean and and, uh, just pouring out judgment for no reason. He's trying, this is his uh, method to bring the nation of Israel to faith in him so that the kingdom can come to the earth, ultimately solving the problem of sin in the world. Colossians 1.19 says, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, in Christ, all the, the fullness of deity to dwell in Christ, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. This is uh, part of God's plan to reconcile all things through Jesus Christ. He is the one who is doing this. And then notice that there is silence for about half an hour here as it's, as it's mentioned. Uh, the lamb breaks the seal, then there was silence in heaven. There is a sequence of events that is being explained here, just like we uh, saw with the seal judgments. Seal number one, then seal number two, then seal number three. It's it's very uh, organized, very sequential uh, set of events that are taking place. There is a, a progression of events here that is, that is happening. And so why is there this silence? Uh, you know, theologians like to ask questions like that, even though uh, the Bible doesn't really tell us why there's silence in heaven. Uh, but theologians uh, waste a lot of uh, ink on on trying to describe the the reason behind this, and I I just like to keep it simple. Uh, so why is there silence? I don't really know because it doesn't tell us in the text why there is. Uh, but there are there's a bunch of a lot of theories about that. There's no judgment here. They'll say so. This must be the end. This is it. This is the end of of time as we know it. That's what this period of judgment uh, or period of silence means. And the and you just kind of makes you wonder. But then all this other judgment happens. So how could that be? Uh, it's the beginning of the millennial kingdom with this. So. Uh, again, same kind of thing. It's, it's a break. Some will say it's a break in the judgments so that these prayers that we read about can be, can be heard. So we need to sit in silence so that our prayers can be heard. You know, the theories, you can just come up with any kind of theory that you want to, but ultimately it's probably best to not get lost in, in the details in these sorts of details that they don't have an explanation and just kind of uh, uh, go with it. 
There are, there are a lot of things in the Bible that can be difficult to understand. And certainly some of these visions that we see in the book of Revelation fit into that category of, of things that are hard to understand. But there are a lot of things in the Bible that we can understand. Uh, like the Bible says that God created the world. The Bible says that Jesus came into the world to die for our sins, that we're separated from God because of our sins. We faced an eternity separated from him, but he, but God in his grace has provided a way for us to be made right with him. There are some things that are just crystal clear that we can understand. If we trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of our sins, we can have eternal life with him. So don't, don't get too uh, caught up in the details of a book like Revelation and miss the overarching uh, message. Uh, and so part of something that we can take away from the silence, however, is that it is a respect for what is to come in this book. And there are, there are several instances of this in, in the Bible. So why is it there? Uh, to prepare, perhaps to prepare us and the world for these judgments that are about to come. The book of Habakkuk in chapter 2 and verse 20 says, But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before Him. Uh, Psalm 46, a great place that people like to go to, uh, to kind of advocate for this silence idea in Christianity today. Uh, Psalm 46, a wonderful psalm talking about the kingdom coming to the earth and how it's going to uh, come in judgment, essentially. Psalm 46 in verse 8 says, Come, behold the works of the Lord who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Verse 10 Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. So we just need to kind of uh, uh, relax, stop fighting against God, in other words, and understand that, that he's going to come to this earth and he's going to establish his kingdom. And we ought to respect that. And that's what we see going on here with this uh, half hour of silence. It is a, a sign of respect for, for what is about to come. So one of, the, one of the theories for the pattern for the book of Revelation is this idea of recapitulation or that these series of judgments are essentially talking all about the same thing. So uh, the seal judgments, the seven seal judgments describe the seven years of tribulation. That now we're going to recapitulate it in the trumpet judgments. We're going to go back to the beginning and we're going to talk about the whole seven year period again. And then when we get to the bowl judgments in chapter 16, we're going to go back to the beginning and we're going to talk about the whole seven year period again. That's essentially uh, what recapitulation 
means. So when we see the, the sixth seal and the seventh seal, that's why they, they theorize that, well, this is the end. This seventh seal is the end because we're just talking about the whole tribulation period in each of these three series of, of judgments. And it's actually a view that has some validity to it, like a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of theological problems, a good, a good uh, way to solve these kinds of things that are difficult to understand in the Bible is to go with the solution that has the least amount of problems, essentially. And one of the problems, quote unquote, for the view that I'm going to give you or that we have been teaching that, that no, that we're not going over the seven-year tribulation three times. It's a description of the, all of the judgments describe the entire seven-year period from the beginning with the seal judgments, then come the trumpet judgments, then come the bowl judgments, and at the end of the bowl judgments, then we have the end of this seven-year period of tribulation. Well, one of the problems with that viewpoint is, well, what do you do with chapter 7? What do you do with chapters 10 through uh, 15, where we have this kind of these breaks in the action? Uh, well, the recapitulation theory kind of deals with those in that, well, we're just talking about the entire tribulation period during that. And then we go back and describe it again and give more details. So it's a pretty, gives a, a, a solution for that problem. I, we, we've talked about our uh, solution in the past for those same, same kind of things and we won't go over that again. The, but there are some real problems with this viewpoint in that, well, the judgments aren't repeated. They're not, we're not going to read about the same judgments in the trumpet judgments and in the bowl judgments. There are some similarities, but it, it is not describing the same, uh, the same events taking place. It also, like I have tried to stress, ignores this chronological language that we see taking place. First, this happens. Then, this happens. Then, this happens. Uh, that we've seen throughout these chapters in 6, 7, and 8 so far that continues on. Uh, language like, after these things, then this next event takes place. Recapitulation kind of uh, ignores that that sort of flow. So here, here it is in a chart version, kind of a, a simplistic view. The seals, uh, seals, trumpets, and bowls are all describing the seven-year tribulation period. They're kind of overlaid one another. That's what recapitulation, re, re-describing the seven-year tribulation in each of the seals, trumpets, and uh, bowls that they kind of overlay one another. Uh, but again, the, there, we have to go with uh, what the text says. Uh, keep that in mind always in studying the Bible. What 
do the words on the page actually say? That is the most important uh, aspect of understanding what the Bible means, understanding what the words on the page actually say. It's, the Bible isn't, well, how do we fit this all together to match with what the newspaper is telling me or what uh, the, I guess, website, news websites are telling me now? We don't read newspapers anymore. Uh, so we have to come up with a different phrase instead of newspaper exegesis, and nobody nobody knows what a newspaper is anymore. So I, I don't know what that would be. Website exegesis? I don't know. Uh, how does this fit with my theological perspective? How does this fit with what science is telling us? None of that should enter into our thinking when we are trying to read and understand what the Bible says. We need to be concerned with what the Bible actually says in order to try to, to understand it. What does the text say? And the text describes these events as taking place sequentially, very, very clearly. The seventh seal, like we see here, leads to seven trumpets. When the seventh seal was broken, then the trumpets were presented to these angels. Then next time we will see the trumpets being uh, blown and the judgments coming. And, and in Revelation 16, the seven trumpets lead to the seven bowls. There are some similarities in the judgments, but they are uh, not not the same. They're in a different order, and there's certainly a mounting intensity in the judgments during the entirety of the tribulation period. Things are getting worse and worse and worse as, as it goes on. And what is known as a telescoping view of the book of Revelation better describes what is actually the, the structure of the book and what is uh, taking place here in the book of Revelation. And uh, so the telescoping view, like when you take a telescope and you pull it out, obviously you can see uh, there, there are stages to a telescope. It, it's all one series of events but you pull out one and then another and then another and, the, and that is what is uh, a good kind of description of what's taking place in the book of, of Revelation. That one set of judgments leads into another set of judgments. Not re-describing the entire period, but giving us more information about what is taking place. And it does this viewpoint... Uh, does a good job of describing how the intensity of the judgments is increasing. Like we saw in our scripture reading in the rest of Revelation chapter 8, things are getting much, much worse than even they were during the sealed judgments. Also have to remember these breaks or intermissions, interludes, if you will, in the judgments like we saw in chapter 7 describing either giving more information about what has already taken place or more information about what's about to take place. 
uh, in each of these chapter 7 and then again at the end of the trumpet judgments chapter 10 through about chapter 15 we'll have another interlude that will describe uh, some will describe the very end some will describe things that have taken place before and some of the things that we uh, see in this second interlude will describe things even still yet to come. So the telescoping view is what uh, I would hold to as a good understanding of the structure of the book of Revelation, a sequential series of events and judgments that are taking place in the earth. The trumpet judgments follow the seal judgments, which will then, the trumpet judgments will lead into the bowl judgments that we'll see later in, in our study of Revelation. So next we see the prayers going up. In Revelation chapter 8 and verse 3, it says, Another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God, out of the angel's hand. So notice we have an angel, the altar, and this incense. It's a a scene of of service, a scene of worship, kind of very reminiscent of, of what we see in the Old Testament with the priestly service and these kinds of things. Even what we saw last time in Revelation chapter 7, Uh, Verse 15, this great multitude, it says, for this reason, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. Well, these angels are kind of doing the same thing, offering this priestly service uh, before the Lord. And some will propose that this this angel is actually Christ because he's offering prayers uh, and that's kind of a, a misunderstanding, I would say. I, he's described as an angel here, and the lamb is the one who's breaking the seals. He, that would make Jesus two different entities in the same kind of vision, kind of strange. Uh, so again, the text says that he's, that he's an angel, so we ought to, to believe that he is, he's an angel acting in, a, in kind of this priestly way of, of service here in this vision. Uh, and, and really, again, we could get totally lost in the, uh, in the details of, of what we see here, but we don't, we don't really need to. Uh, this incense that we're seeing is a way that God makes it so that we as humans can understand kind of spiritual truths. And that's the way that that a lot of uh, what we see in Scripture and things that we do, that's that's a very typical way that God deals with us. Like we had communion last week. Uh, after the service is a, a way, a physical way for us to remember that Jesus had a, uh, his body was broken and he shed his blood for our sins. So we have this physical way to see these spiritual truths. Baptism, 
a very similar truth. We have in baptism a physical uh, thing that we can see going under the water, dying with Christ, being raised up to live in a, in a new way with him, a physical example of a spiritual truth. And this incense and this, these actions of the angel are, are similar to that. Uh, and just like the, the tabernacle on the earth at that time, it was, a, it was a copy of the things that we see going on here in heaven, Hebrews 8, 5, speaking of the tabernacle, saying that they serve a, as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, for see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. Well, here we're getting a view of these things actually in heaven. And so these prayers are going up that we notice. Uh, much incense is given to the, to the angel so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar, which was before the throne, before the throne of God. And this is probably uh, referring to prayers of the, uh, the tribulation saints as they're uh, described believers during the tribulation period. We, we have already seen them praying for essentially judgment to come to the earth so that they can be avenged. We saw that in the martyrs in, uh, back in Revelation chapter 6, the fifth seal. They asked, you know, how long is it going to be? Kind of asking God to, to bring judgment upon the earth. And uh, so... That's a good answer for these uh, prayers that are going up to the Lord. And incense is oftentimes used in the scriptures to describe prayers ascending to heaven. Again, a, a physical way to describe a spiritual truth to kind of help us understand uh, spiritual truth. Psalm 141, 2 says, may my prayer be counted as incense before you, the lifting up of my hands as the evening offering. Uh, Revelation 6, 9 through 10, again, the fifth seal and the, the prayers of those saints going up to, up to the Lord. That's what's being described here in Revelation chapter 8. Now, this doesn't mean, of course, that we as believers now uh, if we believe that we're going to be rescued from this tribulation period, well, you know, this isn't talking about us, so prayer isn't important. Of course, that's uh, kind of a ridiculous conclusion uh, to come to. Of course, our prayers ascend to the Lord exactly the same way that these prayers do. Prayer is something that is uh, a privilege for us, a privilege that we can enjoy because Jesus Christ uh, is our mediator, and he died for our sins. And part of the, the, one of the benefits of having trusted in him is that now, through faith in Christ, we have direct access to, to God on his throne now. We don't need anyone to mediate for us. Uh, we can go directly to God 
through Christ because he died for us and he serves as our mediator. Hebrews 4.14 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can go directly to him with our problems, our concerns, because Jesus Christ uh, acts as our mediator. And as Christians, we are to be people of prayer, uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.16 says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So often we want to know God's will for our lives. You know, where does he want me to go to school? What does he... What kind of job does he want me to take? Who does he want me to marry? Well, well, you know, uh, (laughs) you'll find a lot of the answers to those questions in prayer. That's God's will for us, that we go to him and seek his will for our lives in prayer. And rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Be a person of prayer. In everything, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 6.18, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. I mean, we, we are not a big church by any stretch of the imagination, but we have a lot of people in our church with some very big problems, and they need people to pray on their behalf. And we can all do that. You know, there, there was a special group of people in Israel who were separated out to be the priests and do these kinds of uh, things, the priestly service and say the special prayers and these kinds of things. And we kind of have a tendency to do that sometimes in our own lives. Like, uh, you know, I I want to hear people's prayer requests and want to pray for people, but don't be under the mistaken impression that my prayers mean more to God than your prayers or somebody else's in the church. That's, that's completely, that's completely wrong. Each one of us through the shed blood of Jesus Christ can go to him and can offer our prayers. And they're all, they're all equal. Mine aren't more special than yours or anybody else's for that matter. Uh, we all, that's what's known as the, the priesthood of the believer. We are all essentially priests uh, before the Lord, and we should all be concerned and praying for the cares uh, and concerns of one another in the church. Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9, he says, Pray in this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Recognize, obviously, first off in prayer, the first thing we ought to be doing is recognizing that God is in heaven. He is the one who is uh, in control of, of everything, of all of 
creation, and we ought to recognize that and respect his name, respect who he is, pray for his kingdom to come in this earth, that his will would be done in this earth, uh, in this earth as it is in heaven. Verse 11, in the meantime, until that kingdom comes to the earth, we have some concerns. Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts or forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Verse 13, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. These are the kinds of things that we uh, ought to be praying for in our uh, daily lives. First Timothy 2, beginning in verse 1, Paul says, first of all, then speaking of prayer, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving may be made on behalf of all men. For kings and all who are in authority, there's something we ought to be praying for, particularly in America today. And not for, so our guy gets in or or whatever, uh, but he tells us why we should be praying for our leaders. So that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. So, uh, you know, praying for our, our leadership it's the, the, there's so many various issues in the culture today that are just beyond beyond the pale and and we don't really need to get into today and those are things worthy to pray for that certain laws would pass that other laws wouldn't pass and these kinds of things but ultimately it comes down to uh praying for our leadership so that we can have a peaceful life so that we can continue to, to give the gospel in a way that is effective and in a way that has impact in the world, that we are able to live our lives for the most impact for the Lord. These are the kinds of things that we ought to, ought to be praying for. Why? Because God desires for all men to be saved, not just a, a subset of people, not just this group over here. And I don't really care about that group over there. God desires for every single person on this planet to come to the knowledge of the truth. And where else are those people going to hear it, but from you? or from the church, if we're, if we're doing, we're quote unquote, doing church the proper way, that's where people are going to come to the knowledge of the truth, the truth that they are separated from a holy God because of their sin, that Jesus Christ, God in human flesh came into this world to die for our sins. Where else are they going to hear it if not from you. And we ought to be praying for our leadership and our nation so that we can continue to 
to live in a way that, that is impactful for the Lord. How to pray with persistence. Uh, Luke 18. So we ought to be praying for uh, one another. We ought to be people of prayer. We ought to be praying for, for one another and our needs, uh, the needs of our loved ones and people in the church. We ought to be praying for our, for our leaders. We ought to be praying for uh, God's will to be done in this earth. Kind of prayer is a way to uh, conform our will to God's will. That's, that's what we find Jesus doing in his life so often. And we ought to be praying with persistence. Uh, that's the, the parable that Jesus told in, in Luke chapter 18. He talks about a woman who's going to kind of the mayor of the city and just continually bombarding him with her concern, just will not leave him alone until kind of the evil mayor says, okay, fine, leave me alone. Here's, here's what you want. And Jesus says, well, certainly if this guy is going to give this woman what she desires, uh, this evil guy is going to do it, then certainly God will also do the same. He wants us to uh, continually with persistence come to him in prayer. And the reason for that is if we are continually praying, seeking his face, seeking his will, our will becomes conformed to his will. So we ought to be doing that with persistence. So that kind of little rabbit trail <laughs> is based on verses three and four there, where we see these prayers of the tribulation saints going up before the Lord. And then notice the peals of thunder. We'll end with this verses Five and six, then the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. He, the, the angel fills this censer where the incense is where the, and the smoke is coming out. He fills it with fire, which is a, a symbol of judgment that is about to come in Ezekiel 10 and 11. We see a very uh, similar scene where God is going to uh, bring judgment upon the nation of Israel through the nation of Babylon. Uh, and Ezekiel is allowed to see a very similar scene to what John sees here in Revelation chapter 8. So this censor again, is kind of a symbolic way that God is demonstrating this truth to us. It's not, uh, it doesn't have to uh, be literally this event taking place, but rather it is a way for us to see what God is going to do. See the judgment that is about to come uh, to the earth. And again, that's what the thunder and the lightning is all about. Thunder and lightning kind of portend a storm. When we see the flashes of lightning and hear the thunder coming from the western sky, uh, we know, yeah, it's about, to, it's about to storm. Same thing here in Revelation chapter 
uh, or verse five in chapter eight with these peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning. And oh, by the way, another earthquake that kind of gets overlooked. Another earthquake takes place with the seventh seal. More judgment coming upon the earth. More judgment for what Revelation terms the earth dwellers. At the end of these trumpet judgments, or after the sixth trumpet, it says in Revelation 9.20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and of silver and brass and of stone and of wood, which can neither see nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. That's why these things are taking place, so that these people would uh, understand that there's a holy God who dwells in heaven. But instead, uh, they don't do it. They don't turn from their, from their ways. They don't heed the judgment that is coming. And he's giving the warning through this, through the thunder. He did something very similar in Exodus chapter 19 with the uh, Israelites when he was giving the law. There was uh, the same kind of imagery, thunder, lightning, and these kinds of uh, things taking place. And then the censer that the angel had is thrown to the earth when these, uh, in these, judgments start to take place. This is really uh, symbolic of the answer of the prayers. If you remember the incense and the censer were the prayers being lifted up to God and then the censer is thrown to the earth. Well, that's a a sign that, well, the prayers are, are going to be answered. There is going to be judgment and this is how it's going to take place. Very much like uh, Exodus chapter three, Verses 7 through 10 talk about the nation of Israel calling out to God to be relieved of this judgment. Well, this same thing is going to happen. And notice again that the angels prepare the trumpets. When this uh, seventh seal is broken, verse 6, the seven angels uh, who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. They are, in other words, Again, a sequence of events. The seventh seal is broken. Then the seven, uh, seven angels with the trumpets prepare to blow them. There is, a, a, in our minds, a passage of time going on here. There is a sequential order. The seals, seal judgments, then a sealing of the 144,000. There's this delay in time before the trumpet judgments take place. And this delay is, in essence, a chance to believe. God in his even is gracious throughout the entirety of the Bible. There aren't two different gods portrayed in the Bible. Oh, the God of the Old Testament's really mean and nasty. The God of the New Testament is... Uh, love and fluffy clouds and puppy dogs. And isn't it great? No, he is the God of grace throughout the entirety of the Bible, even in the midst of this tribulation. He seals these 144,000 witnesses to protect them so that people would believe. And guess what? We 
are living in a time of, uh, of a delay. Also, we're living in this church age right now. There is a delay before these judgments will take place. God doesn't have to do that. He doesn't have to give us this time to trust in him. He could have just poured out his judgment on a very deserving world after they rejected him and crucified him on the cross. I mean, is there anything more deserving of God's judgment than that, than sending his son to die on the cross? I really can't think of of anything. But God in his mercy, in his grace, he's given us 2,000 years now to trust in him because he isn't willing that any person end up here in the lake of fire. He doesn't want any single person who's ever lived to end up here for eternity. Instead, he wants us to be with him for eternity. And that's why he went to the cross to die for us. That's why he's giving us all this time that we have now to trust in him for the forgiveness of our sins. And that, that's just as simple and as easy as, as it is. Our lives can, can become very complex uh, as we uh, deal with the situations of life, but salvation is a very, very simple thing. God, in his mercy, saw us in our fallen state, separated from him because of our sins, And he came and lived in this world as God in human flesh to pay the penalty for our sins. And and he he doesn't ask us to to commit to following him for the rest of our lives. He doesn't ask us to never sin again. He doesn't ask us, oh, you know, sorry, you committed this particular sin, so I don't really want anything to do with you. No. That's not the God of grace. He came and lived in this world. God in human flesh shed his perfect eternal blood for our sins so that if we just trust in him, forget religion, forget uh, doing enough good works, forget making sure my good outweighs my bad. None, None of that is found in the Bible. The only thing that is mentioned in the Bible for receiving the forgiveness of our sins is trust, belief in what Christ did. And his word tells us that if we do that, we are born again. We are given spiritual life. We're given eternal life simply by trusting in what he's done for us. And he is, and in his grace, He's allowing us now to live in this silent period without this uh, before this judgment that's going to take place in the future. Let's go to him in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this book of Revelation that reveals these things that will take place in the future. I thank you for giving us a view of these horrendous judgments that will happen so that we can... uh, essentially be scared so that we can know that you are a God who demands righteousness. You're a God who demands justice and you are going to do it one day. 
But you also, in your word, revealed that you came into this world and died for our sins so that we could be right with you, so that we could be rescued from this time to come and enjoy eternal life with you because you did all the work for us. I just pray, Lord, that you uh, would convict us in areas of our lives that where we need to be convicted, that we would trust in you, uh, first off, for the forgiveness of our sins uh, in general, and also that we would trust in you uh, and, and uh, know that you forgive us of our sins, even in our daily lives, after we've believed in you, that we can have a right relationship with you today, whether we trusted in you 50 years ago or whether we trusted in you five minutes ago. We can, ha- we can live in a way that is pleasing to you today. I just pray that your Holy Spirit would do that work for us. We pray for our, for our nation, that we would return to you, that, we would, uh, that our leaders would uh, recognize you as the God of the universe uh, so that we can enjoy a peaceable life here. And in the meantime, and if that doesn't happen, I just pray that you would be with your people, with your church, that you would encourage us, edify us, uh, give us courage to live for you in this world that so desperately needs the salvation of Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.